0: Yesterday, uh, regarding the prenup, about the question of a I think maybe it was Caleb. I'm not sure. Somebody brought up the issue yesterday. About what? About the issue that the maybe the chassan, when he signs the prenup, he doesn't really expect there to be such consequences. He yes, I did. Right. So that is a halakhic issue in general, and it's a question how much it matters here. But uh, although this is, as far as seriousness. This is maybe second to the question we were talking about yesterday. So the most serious objection, if you want to rank in terms of seriousness, maybe the least serious objection is it's not romantic to talk about divorce at the time of the wedding. But uh, most serious is the one we've been talking about the past day or two, the issue of is it possibly a coerced death? And that's what we were addressing close to that, and maybe associated with that, is another issue that has been brought up, which can be dealt with in a few ways, and can be dealt with really from technical approaches. But it is the question of asmachta. Asmachta means a few different things in halacha. This is not the same kind of asmachta that we invoke if we use a pasuf to back up a din, and that's only a din, we call that an as-machta. That's not the same word, uh, or the same word, it's not the same meaning. But the word asmas in this context comes from to rely on something. And the Gemara tells us that there is a issue if somebody makes a commitment. But that commitment was really a contingency commitment. And it's clear, or maybe clear, from the context that he doesn't expect to ever have to do it. So therefore, the commitment is not with actual commitment, is not with full devotion. And this is actually one of the biggest problems halakhically with gambling. There are a number of problems with gambling. We talked about that on a Sunday or a different time. But one of the more significant halachic problems is specifically addressed to the winner, that if you make a bet with somebody and you win the bet, and you end up collecting money. So the Gemara says, the Sanhedrin, that you are Apostle Adas. And one reason why is because of this issue of Asmahta, that there is something within the family of stealing there. It may not be direct theft, but collecting money on a bet is often associated with this issue of Asmahta. because why is that money coming to you? You didn't actually do anything to earn it. didn't provide any service to the other person. You didn't lend him any money or break his property or he broke your property. None of that happened. So why is he paying you? So he's paying you only because he said he would pay you if something happens, because that was the nature of the bet. And the assumption is that when somebody makes such a declaration, they don't expect that they'll actually have to pay it. That they were saying this because they thought that they wouldn't have to pay it. So, therefore, the money that's being collected by the winner is coming under false pretenses, coming without justification, rather. And therefore, there's something in the world of Gezel. It's not actual Gezel, but there's something in the world of Gezel, we say, that, that is not considered to be an acquisition, and therefore, that's a problem. So the gambling is one, maybe more well-known example, but it's an issue in general. If somebody were to say, yeah, I'll uh, come to share on time tomorrow or else I'll pay you a billion dollars, so it's probably clear from that context that he only said he's going to pay a million dollars because he was quite sure he wouldn't have to pay the million dollars and that he wouldn't have taken on that commitment if he thought there was any realistic chance that he was actually going to have to pay that. So therefore, the language in that case maybe conveys what's going on. And when you have a contingent commitment like that, there is this concern about smachda. Did you have a question? No, it's not a one Okay, no. yeah, you thought you never had to ask the question? And it, uh, expecting false, false pretenses. False pretenses. Okay, so that's the issue of smachda in general. So there are those who invoke this concern against the prenup. And it's also, again, difficult to understand because why should that make it any different than the Xuba, which also has that same reality to it, and also comes with a condition in the case of divorce. But, be that as it may, whether you find the question compelling or not, there is the technical route. And so, for example, the document can create a language that when a deal is made in a Besden Chashev, made with a certain degree of formality so then that itself addresses the concern of osmata so there is a system that is built into the prenup itself she uh, took the initiative i saw this morning to send around you know if you had a chance to look at it and get a little bit a little more clear because of that so things that are probably still a little confusing about it. but uh, there's uh yeah there's the details that are a little bit hard to follow but the general idea so that was to be able to get a chance to see. So you see there's language that's built in there that this is not an Asmahta, this is done with seriousness and with recognition of the commitment that addresses that. Now, in general, the two issues that we're talking about here, they do interrelate if there is a problem of asmachta, <laughs> So then we say Asmakta Lokanya, so it's not a justified opinion. So then it does bring up one of the main issues that was described in terms of a Get Musa alpi pi that the question of whether monetary pressure disqualifies a Get or not, so one of the cases that was described actually by Rabbeinu Yeruchim, and he was saying this is okay, but others disagreed with him, but the scenario that Rabbeinu Yeruchim described and at least his conclusion is quoted in the Beis Yosef, if you had a chance to see so Rabbeinu Yeruchim's case was that this woman who wants a get, so she seized her husband's assets. She grabbed some money of his and she's refusing to give it back unless she receives a get. So essentially it's kind of a after-the-fact kind of monetary pressure. In other words, the pressure has already happened and now it's a question of undoing it. She's already taken the money. So the Redi Rucham was of the opinion that that does not invalidate the get. But one is Machmir, like the Rashba and others, so then that's essentially what's being described there. So that concern that the money that she would be collecting, if it is Asmachta, so then the issues relate to each other. That becomes, we said, the second most serious issue, but it also would contribute to the most serious issue, that labeling it as an Asmachta would mean that there is a lack of justification for the money that she's taking, and therefore that would create pressure shalouk So that's something to be concerned about, but again, the way that this is set up, for reasons that we mentioned yesterday and today, shouldn't really fall under that heading. Uh, but this is also just mentioned parenthetically, so I think we alluded to the other day, that there are various legislative attempts in different states in America to try to address this issue. And they have various levels of effectiveness or halachic concerns, and sometimes they go together. So, for example, in New York State, there was a get law in the 80s and a get law in the 90s. And the get law in the 80s in New York State was that the judge would have the ability to factor in if one party or the other is preventing the other from remarrying. So then they could factor that in in terms of granting a divorce. So that doesn't really bring up so many halakhic problems, but it also wasn't so effective because there could be a spouse who really doesn't care whether New York State was going to grant them the right to remarry or not, and it didn't really have so much of an impact. The second get law was potentially more powerful, but also significantly more halakhically complicated and there is uh, quite a debate about the second get law and its implications. Is this second get law still in effect? I believe that it is, and whether it creates a cloud over every get was in fact uh, an issue that there were those who raised. Uh, Others thought that it's far from ideal, but doesn't necessarily create the other problem, and also the question of whether it inflicts a problem just by existing or only if it's being invoked. But, basically, it allows the judge to factor in if one party or the other is preventing the other from remarrying, so then that could be factored in into the asset distribution. So that becomes much more serious as far as monetary coercion, because the concern is, so okay, the judge will basically say to the husband, all right, you're refusing to give a get, I'm taking away all your assets and giving them to your wife. So that essentially might be like what Rebbe Yeruchun described, and to those who were against that, who were mocking on that, so then that would seem to be kind of a text- for, textbook financial coercion. So that's also going to uh, bring up these issues. There's a huge locus about that, and about just how much of an impact that has. Even those who are amicable about this, and their arts taught them to be amicable to be added, but they do agree that probably it's not the smoothest law to have in place because it certainly does seem to bring up these complications and isn't necessarily going to end up doing more good than harm. We also alluded to, so just to explain this, so I don't remember how far we got talking about this, but there is, I think maybe also some may a question table to ask I don't remember, but in theory, we try to emphasize at the beginning that it's often portrayed that the problem is caused exclusively by husbands who refuse to give, get, but it's possible that it could also happen from the other direction because based on rabbinic law as it is currently practiced, a divorce is not going to be able to take effect unless the wife accepts the get. So, if that's the case, so you could end up having a problem from either direction. Hi. But no, on a der- der- derisa level, it would be fine if
1: you just, like, throwin- On a
0: derisa level, but we follow rabbinic law. So...
1: That's is, there, is there any way to be make on a case
0: because on a derisa level so there is but it's also this gets into huge sociological things so i'll just address it just very briefly because it's only a side point but it's important to appreciate because the way it's portrayed is that divorce jewish divorce is completely in the hands of the husband and that's not accurate there's some degree of reality behind that i'm not going to gloss over that but practically speaking according to rabbinic law as is practiced in our communities Uh, certainly in Ashkenazi communities, but also nowadays beyond as well, that being that we assume that a husband can neither marry a second wife while married to the first one, nor can he divorce his wife, Balkarcha, so therefore he is also tied into her agreement. So she is not allowed to get remarried until he gives the get, but he's not allowed to get remarried until she accepts the get. So, technically speaking, it's more accurate to say that, not that the husband controls the whole situation, but that divorce has to be mutual, that we need to have the consent of both parties. Now, I don't mean to gloss over the fact that it's still not really equal, and that if if the wife should remarry without a get, so the consequences are catastrophic, while if the husband remarries without his wife getting a get, the consequences are not as catastrophic. They, As far as Gilearaios, and as far as Ishish and as far as Ramsaris, it's true that those consequences are not the same. But practically speaking, again, if he is observant and he's going to follow Jewish law, and if he's going to look to remarry with a rabbi who is also concerned about Jewish law, so he's still going to be barred from remarriage. Now, just to parenthetically discuss what the digit brought up, so because this is a rabbinic enactment that was initially put into place by Rebbeinu Gershom Meragola, so there was a escape clause that was instituted together with it that's known as the Heter Meir that theoretically, if 100 rabbis would sign on to a declaration that this husband should be allowed to move on despite his wife's refusal so theoretically he would be allowed to and that is a whole interesting discussion post-game which maybe we'll get to because I would like to talk about this in more detail, I'm just explaining it briefly now the interesting question is if husband has to violate one of these two dinin, because let's say he's being given permission to, so which is preferable? So should he marry a second wife without divorcing the first one or should he divorce his wife Balkarcha? So that's an interesting discussion. There's a literature about that we won't necessarily talk about today. But theoretically, the Hetem Rabbanim exists for him to do that. However, it is meant to be very rare and to be very demanding. And the idea of it being a hundred rabbis means it's supposed to be a hundred separate rabbis who are all looking to the case from three separate countries and have all come together and signed on to this agreement, which is meant to be difficult and meant to be very rare. Now, the fact may be that there are those today who are giving out to me that don't meet that standard and that is scandalous, literally, in every sense of the word. And uh, Rishak Tashlita has led demonstrations outside of the houses, not only of the Husbands, but also uh, rogue Bate Din and rabbis who have been giving out these declarations without justification, whether they're being influenced to do so or however it's coming about. But the fact is that this is meant to be a very high wall and uh, for those who are more scrupulous so indeed they don't find it so easy to obtain so it is indeed the case that there are many husbands or i should say many but it's certainly possible and there exist husbands who are essentially also agunim they are stranded because it's not easy it shouldn't be easy for them to get ahead to meravanim and until their wife accepts until the wife is willing to accept the get they are also not able to move on
1: Um, just to make sure I, I understand, the Hegemayrbanim uh, is, is there as like a, a, a way to address, like, Darabhanim. So like it only applies for a husband wife wife I mean, it, only it's, a it's, part not, of it's not the other way. Right. It's a part yeah. of the industry. The other way, and that has to do
0: with the mechanics. That there's nothing you can do about Torah law because if a woman remarries to so get that so that's a diminuha Torah d'ish and not there is no like. So there's nothing that the rabbis can do about that. But when it comes to the husband, so being that that's all a function of this takana of the so it theoretically exists. But again, it's meant to be very difficult, and whether or not everybody who's dealing with it treats it with the proper severity. And seriousness that it's supposed to be, it's a separate question. We can't speak for those who are acting improperly, but that's how it's meant to be. Caleb?
1: Also, whether it's um, divorce by al-Korcha or taking on a second wife has drastic ramifications for the first wife.
0: Uh, yeah, I guess so. So I said, there are elements to consider on each side. So there is a literature about that. Again, maybe we'll get to that topic a little bit later on, time permitting. But, I mean, it is it all ties back into our... First Sugya, that I was probably getting Indian Echad, Sugya Echad, so everything ties in. So, you know, part of, if you recall, the very first Sugya that we spoke about was when the Mishnah in the end of the Masachta talks about the justifications for divorce, is that talking about a uh, Is that talking about it all? So, the whole notion of when, if, how, was ever theoretically justified Baal and you recall that we assumed then that it was possible, but still usser, So the parameters are somewhat complicated. Maybe we'll say more about that to kind of close the loop. But for now, just to understand that that's supposed to be really very difficult if possible at all. And Ruf Soloveitchik is quoted, and you can actually read this in his words directly in his letters that were published in English a number of years ago. So there is a letter there where Ruf is a little bit unclear because Hard to know exactly what he's saying, but so just to say it, first is the court first. So Rosholovitchik so is quoted as saying that he would never participate in a hetzmeir abandan because ultimately he feels that it's unjust. That basically it's there to kind of equalize the playing field and mean that just like the wife is not able to move forward, so therefore the husband should not be able to move forward either. So it said that the idea seems to be that he wouldn't participate no matter what, that he basically just would take that off the table as far as he's concerned. If you read the letter inside, it could mean that, but it's a little bit unclear because he starts off complaining about those who unjustly issue Ate Meribahim, as we just said, he talked about unjustified. And inadequate at the meir and then says that he never signed on to one. So does he mean that he's talking about specifically those that are unjustified? That maybe theoretically it could happen that there would be one that is justified, or is he saying it more sweepingly that just he would take that off the table because it's meant to level the playing field, and therefore he wouldn't be involved at all? It's a little bit, a little bit
1: ambiguous from the letter. Right. I, what? I mean, I guess like it's a letter, so this isn't a traditional letter. But like, like, like what, no, or like, why? Why does he need to say that he wouldn't take place in unjust?
0: You're right. I mean, it, it, the flow is a little bit, a little bit ambiguous. But he could mean, as he's quoted, as saying that he never would participate at all. Uh, so that's it's all a question about just what to do with that. But in any event, so practically speaking, if we are going to be careful about all the details, so it should mean that really for practical purposes, not in terms of consequences, because that's out of our hands, but in terms of what should be permitted and not permitted, that it's basically according to rabbinic law today, it should be a more correct statement to say, not that the husband controls the whole situation, but that there needs to be mutuality, and that either spouse can mess things up, neither spouse can move ahead unilaterally, and either spouse can, through their recalcitrance, get things into a place where it can't move forward. And it should also emphasize that when and if a hatim rabhanim ever is justified, so being that the premise is that the wife is not accepting, or maybe it could be that she's mentally incapacitated, that's certainly a possible consideration. But whatever it is, since the premise is that he wants to give a gap, it's just he's not being allowed to, so in order to receive the sector, he's supposed to put a get in escrow, meaning he's supposed to do everything he can to make that get available and that she can pick it up, and otherwise, that again is a big abuse of the system, that if he is going to be able to find a way that he can move forward, and she can't, so then that's, that's part of the big problem that we're finding, so a part of the abuse that you would find today is if a heta, marabham, heta marabham is given out first of all without justification or second of all even if there is some claim for justification but then it should be with the get being made available to the wife whenever she's ready to take it now you could still manipulate that theoretically if there's an unjust system and that's also a part of what we find in some of these complicated situations that if you have an unscrupulous person or however you want to phrase it that the Besdin is we'll leave aside the words of judgment but theoretically maybe the husband could find a Besdin that will indeed give him a hatameh abanan and will hold the gift for him to be delivered to the wife but it's only going to be given to her under certain conditions and the conditions can be so impossible or so difficult for her to accept that it's claim is that the guy is waiting for her, but practically speaking, it's not actually waiting for her unless she's willing to make some major concession. So that is all a part of the problem, that's all a part of the issue. So, actually, while we're talking about the prenup, I'll say another word about that in a few minutes, but what I always wanted to address here is, so being that theoretically it's possible, and it has happened, that a situation can come up not only because of the husband's recalcitrance, but because of the wife's recalcitrance. So there are those who say, so how come you're giving me a prenup that only addresses what to do if the husband misbehaves? What if the wife misbehaves? So how will you deal with that? So there is a bilateral version that exists also, and that bilateral version puts financial consequences on the wife if she is the cause of the impasse. So that's meant to correct that imbalance, and theoretically that could work, and that's available. It has a, a little bit of a difference, though. So first of all, everything that we've been explaining for the past two days about what the prenup is and isn't is going to shift as far as that's concerned, because or at least as far as the, the wife's part of it, because we've been very careful to explain that the consequence for the husband is not a penalty is not a fine and shouldn't be seen as financial pressure, it's just a natural outgrowth of his continuing to be married. On the wife's side you're not going to be able to have the same explanation, so it's going to come from a different place. However, it's not going to matter as much because you're not going to have the same consequences of get ma'usa. So, this the bilateral version exists, it's not necessarily going to, the other side of it is not going to have the same logic and of what we've been saying the past two days but the uh, consequences are not necessarily the same anyway. Shlomoeli, Um I noticed on that the
1: uh, Based in America prenup, mm-hmm. that they mentioned these optional boxes for custody. Oh, yeah, that confuses everybody. So Three just, boxes. Yeah. yeah, but regarding custody, I guess it's an outgrowth of marriage in this conversation. Is there a halakhic stance on what's supposed to happen with the kids?
0: So roughly speaking, this is super complicated, but just to speak about it for a minute, and certainly, by the way, guy willing, so you should all get married, and you should all sign a prenup. So, mm-hmm. before you do, give yourself at least five minutes to read this, so you can address this issue because this does get complicated. So, on the form, so truth sure that it's connected to the next part. So, let me just, uh, okay, we can move to that, move that in a second, and it's connected to that. So, but just to finish off this point, so just wanted to mention this fact that there is the bilateral version, which has a different structure as far as what would happen to the wife if she refuses to cooperate. And the explanation we've been using for the husband side of it wouldn't apply, but maybe it doesn't have to apply. But Willig has mentioned that he feels that the, really the one that he's comfortable recommending is the unilateral version that he was part of offering. Uh, presumably, on the one hand, it's certainly... A lot of what we spoke about yesterday when the question was brought up about the harama and the like, and I emphasized how this is really just a strengthening of all the existing aspects of marriage and should be seen as very far from harama and something that is quite organic. So that's a little bit more... True in the context of the husband's side. That, again, it's just an emphasizing of the continuation of the marriage. When you have the penalties placed on the wife, it's not going to be the same. It may still be a good reason for it, but it's not going to be the same. But uh, part of why Abelilik prefers to recommend the original prenup is because there is also a whole pedigree, there's a whole history. And the prenup, despite the controversy that we've mentioned over the past few days, there are many great gedolim who have endorsed the prenup. And since it's being advertised, being represented as being endorsed by these great gedolim, so we'd rather stick with the version that they actually saw and endorsed. So all those endorsements are true about the classic one, and the names associated with that. In addition to, if I will again, the Zom and the having been the authors of it. So it's already starting from a place of tremendous strength, but uh, it's also been endorsed by uh, Rav Shechter Shlita and by Rebavaji Yosef, Sechah Tzadik Levracha, and uh, by Rebash Shlita. So uh, many have, many big names have signed on to that. You can see them all on the Bethesda of America website, on the prenup website. So they were all signing on to that original version. It's interesting if you read the endorsements are of Asher Weiss, he has a letter there where he makes it clear that he is endorsing, but he gets into the lumbus a little bit. Uh, we mentioned that a precedent for the Basin of America prenup is the Tarkhan Shum that is printed in the Shiva, where there, there is a document that has a clause in it, that if there is ketata, if there is strife and fighting between the couple, that there is a Daily sum there that is mentioned to provide for the wife, which seems to be a precedent where the prenup seems to be pretty much the same kind of idea. So that's probably the case. Uh, Rabasha writes in his letter that he's not so convinced by that point. He doesn't think that necessarily the kanashum is the same thing. He thinks that that was actually meant to serve its own purpose, that serve its stated purpose directly that if they're separated and the mice she's not gonna be cared for because he doesn't feel he has to worry about her. So that's why they put this in to make sure that she will continue to be cared for. He doesn't think necessarily that it's there to encourage the get. So the he still thinks that the prenup is good and recommended, but just that particular precedent from the Takhanasrum he wasn't totally convinced by. It. But uh you know, if you actually look the third possibility that if you look at the way it's presented in the Nahal Shiva, you can get a nice fancy Nahal Shiva nowadays that has uh, two volumes and has a lot of footnotes and has a lot of commentary. So it's a very fascinating safer uh, to own and to read because it's also quite a history lesson. Here you have documents from the past. Uh, well, he, was, he himself only lived in the 1600s. You don't have super recent documents, but you have documents that were used up to his time. And there is a commentary that the Author Nachlas Shiva himself writes on some of these documents, so a lot of fascinating things there. So it sounds like from Nahal Shiva that he had a third understanding that he thought that the purpose of that monetary stipend was to encourage them to reconcile. That if, it's, if he's racking up the bills while they're separated, so then that will be a motivation to get things back together again. So basically, there could be three understandings. As to what this monetary stipend is for or maybe for and so we just to review what would be before so the worst is to see it as a penalty because that was where the objection was it would be disqualifying the one we're seeing it as is not as a penalty but as the simple consequence of continuing to be married and yes that that will indirectly encourage the husband to the situation in order to save himself from that cost but it's not a penalty but a outgrowth of the situation the suggestion that Vasha weiss had was that it's there just to provide for her during that time although again still endorsing the prenup and uh, nafta's comment on the document is that it was there to motivate something else though to motivate a reconciliation so that's also possible, and that's all there. As we mentioned the other day, the Therese Gittin is is certainly explicit that he's talking about it as a way of encouraging a divorce, and he thought it was okay because it wasn't a direct pressure on a divorce, it was coming from this side consideration of having to pay for the muzomas. So far, so good? anybody with me? So, now it's just to get one more step to get to Elie Shomel Elie's question. So, there are, while we're talking about the prenup, just to mention that there are two parts to the prenup. And the controversy all surrounds what we've been speaking about so far, about the financial aspect. But there's another aspect which should not really be controversial at all. And the truth is, from my experience, I think this is incredibly valuable and by itself would solve 99.5% of all cases. And that's something that really should be encouraged, that even if somebody has an issue with everything else, and say they're a Talmud of Versternbach or whatever else, they have, uh, if they really do feel that there are concerns associated with the monetary component, So there's another way to write a prenup, and that's also a part of this prenup that should be far less controversial and by itself I think would really solve a huge percentage of the problems, possibly close to all of them. And what that is is the agreement to arbitrate, and that essentially, so being that we're talking about a President of America document, so here the default is that the couple is committing that should they find themselves in this issue, so they will commit to addressing it in the Besnan of America. Theoretically, you could use any Besnan, but that's the default in this case. And from my experience, which is pretty extensive, you'll live with uh, cases through ORDA, tell you that the that alone would solve almost every case in aware because Most of these situations do not emerge from overt evil, from one spouse just saying, I'm looking to torture the other spouse. That's not where they come from. They all come in some form, even if there is evil behind it, but often that's not the case, but it gets out of hand. But what is at the root of a lot of these situations is venue fighting, that each spouse is saying, whether they mean this sincerely or not, but what they're claiming is that I'm not holding things up, this will end tomorrow, as soon as my spouse comes to the only one good resident in the world that knows how to handle this fairly, then it'll be over, because they may have a feeling that one venue or the other is going to be able to address it in what they would perceive as fair. And that any other venue or the venue that the other spouse wants is not going to be fair. So because of that, unfortunately, there can be a holdup for literally decades about which venue to go to. So if there is a pre-commitment that we're handling the problem here, whatever it is, we're going to the best of America, and whatever they say,
1: we're going to follow them, that would really solve pretty much all the cases, almost all the cases. All right? Um, what about, like, I'm just, I have it open, the optional, like... So yeah, I'm going to explain the options in a second. Oh, like, okay. So like, I'll explain that part in a second. Because it looks like you can sign
0: one. Okay. I know, so let me explain that part. So, but just to first get this into the picture, so the commitment to arbitrate in a specific venue is really humongous as far as this is concerned. Is going to have, so if that was signed, that would have tremendous implications for almost all the cases, and theoretically you could have a document that doesn't have the controversy uh, of all the monetary issues, but just as that, just an agreement to arbitrate in a specific Besdin will have a huge impact and could really solve almost all the cases, it just tends not to be in place. And one way or another, whether it's sincere or not, it could be insincere, but the External part of the makhlokes is almost always about venue. It's very rare that one side is just saying, I just refuse, and that's possible, but usually you don't have one side saying that I just refuse to ever cooperate and let them suffer forever. More, Much more common is just saying, Oh, I'm totally ready to deal with this, but you actually have to go to my besn. Now, that could be said from a place of total corruption or unfairness, and that relates to what I said before that maybe. And it's sometimes the case, the husband has found one bezdin that he can control that will demand all the terms and that will give him the hetero merabunin to remarry, unless she agrees. And that's not at all just, but he can certainly pretend that it is and say that, okay, again, without judging what's sincere and what isn't, but he can say, okay, this is, I found the one good Besden in the world. What a strange thing that no other Besdin anywhere has ever been fair until this one, but luckily there's this one place, and uh, how come my wife doesn't realize that, and if she just shows up at this one fair bezdin that gets waiting for her, I don't understand the problem so that is far from uncommon as far as the claim so if they had agreed to arbitrate in a mutually agreed upon venue, that would have a huge impact and that already was described by Rav Feinstein, Rav Feinstein has a chuva where he says that so that should be far less controversial, but uh Remote does a chuba that he thinks it should work. That he was asked about this by, by a pair, if I'm not mistaken, from Akaway, and he responded that if you had an agreement like this to say that we're gonna to go to this president and follow whatever the instructions are that they give, so then that would be effective. So even in a case where you can't have the rest of the cleanup sign, so at least that much should be far less controversial so we got to Ezra you did just well
1: how is that part? if you
0: just do that part how is that enforceable? because that should be legally enforceable uh, you, you claim in general that you've signed this document and it's a legal document with notarization of the lawyers so it should be enforceable Hi.
1: why why did it take so long for for this to happen? like I get it being, like, more of an American problem than, like, because there was more autonomy in, in so when we lived in Europe and things like that. Mm-hmm. But, like, why, why did it take to the late 1900s to do this? So,
0: a lot of it, in terms of where the problem's coming from, so you see that there is a gullus element, which is part of what we were talking about the other day, that the more decentralized the community is, the more it's an issue. Now, you have a history throughout of various efforts and various degrees of acceptance. But that also goes to the same the other day in terms of the spirit of the law and the lack of haram issue so a part of what this contributes and why i think it's so beneficial from just even from the spirit of the law picture in addition to solving the issue to the extent that it does to the great extent that it does is that first of all it doesn't tamper with marriage if anything it strengthens the marriage it doesn't tamper with the autonomy of either spouse it strengthens that also but it also kind of restores the communal cohesion and the idea that this is able to fester because there is such decentralization and because anyone can just go to their residence or can just go anywhere else and not care about the other person and not care about the other community. So this connects that This restores those communal connections which Gullus and contemporary life have pretty much severed. So that's another way, another very significant way, in which the prenup is able to speak to the spirit of the law, of a number of laws here, in a powerful fashion and another reason why it serves a tremendous purpose. Did you? Is,
1: it, is it accepted in the more right-wing? So activities? there is a
0: continuing effort to, to spread, and okay. well, then there are different versions and there are different Modification is suggested. It's not uh, totally there yet, and also, you know, we mentioned the controversy in some circles that exists. But if you're talking about just an agreement to arbitrate, so again, Ramosha wrote that. But to the extent that it uh, has been adopted, is still a work in progress. So, hi, um,
1: maybe for a different day, or I'm just <laughs> Sunday. <laughs> no, no, but it's it's not a Sunday topic. It's just a, okay, it's like, a like, topic. A, like I'm topic. familiar, but not like <laughs> so familiar with like. The idea and from like and like maybe it was just the fact that it was from gts like the lieberman yeah like so the whole history behind that so that, that's also got a lot of details so, so guy willing to try to revisit that also
0: so here uh, in terms of this agreement to arbitrate so just to go back to what was asked before so that's where there's our confusing three column option because you're agreeing to arbitrate in this case president america so the question is, how much, okay, it's so late every day. So like every drug this time, it gets to be this time. So the question uh, of how, how much do you agree to? So the form offers three options for a couple of reasons why it offers three options, but you could do it in a minimal way. You could say that you're going to agree just for the purposes of the GET to submit to this Besdin. So at least it will address that Fundamental sticking point, or you can say that you will submit to the Besdin for all purposes, and which usually the main things would be assets and custody. So you can submit to the Besden of America for the get and for the asset distribution and for the custody. And there's a middle version which is just assets without custody of children. So there, when it's when it's no gay, so you should certainly feel free and encouraged to consult with a lawyer as to what you feel comfortable signing. But certainly speaking, strictly speaking, halakhically, we have a prohibition of our coast, so that's also a and gittin. So we really would advocate having a bezdin deal with everything. But for whatever reason people are sometimes wary about Bate Din and we don't want to let that get in the way in terms of the more pressing issue. So, theoretically, the commitment could be that we'll just agree for this purpose and not necessarily reserve the right to address the other aspects of the divorce separately. And maybe sometimes there'll be a justification for that. So without necessarily entering into the judgment of that, on paper, we would normally say we want a president to handle everything. But if for whatever reason, so you are have ready to sign that, so we don't want that to be a sticking point, so we want to at least make sure there's an agreement to address to get. So you have those three options. When it comes to custody of children, so that's a whole sugia in of itself. It marries about that. But usually in many states in America, so the government's gonna insist on a veto or a approval as far as that's concerned. So sometimes that's going to get a little bit more complicated anyway. But basically that's what those that's what those three columns are meant to represent. And that's all a subset of the fact that the document is providing the service of having the venue selected, which, again, would solve a huge percentage of the problems, and really an even bigger percentage than otherwise, because saying that most people are not presenting as totally evil, whether they're actually evil or not, whether they're Pintola or Russia, or not, but they're usually not saying, yes, I just plan on making my spouse suffer. Most of the time, it is presented as, oh, I'm justified, and my spouse is just not being reasonable. And when they realize that if they go to the one reasonable venue that exists in the world and agrees to cooperate, then it'll be immediately over, and it's not me who's delaying it, it's them who's delaying it. So whether that's honest or sincere or not, and without saying which one it may be, but could be anywhere along the spectrum, but so it's presenting as a venue dispute, whether it's true or not. So having the venue clarified would make a huge deal, would make a huge impact. But even if it is not presenting that way, even if the husband, let's say, is saying, I'm just not interested in cooperating, so then having a legally enforceable commitment to other traits still addresses that too. And Therefore, generally, even in those situations would help. So the majority of situations are presented as a venue dispute, but even if, or even when we say venue disputes, it's usually about the venue, but even if it's not explicitly about the venue or it's about some kind of claim, so it's still presented as the venue that the spouse wants me to go to is not going to properly address my claim or whatever it is. is not going to be addressed. So the nature of this agreement is to say, okay, you have whatever complaints you have, you have whatever positions you believe need to be heard out, and so we'll go to you'll we'll agree in advance that this is going to be a fair place that will consider everything that needs to be considered. So then that should be able to address this in a satisfactory fashion. Okay, so those are some of the main points. We still have to also look at other views about how fear works. We spent a lot of time focusing on the Rambam, but we have to figure out how the Rambam compares to other traditions. So we will be God willing to go see that. And there's a lot to do, but we uh, have a little bit of perspective on some of these issues. Tomorrow we've got to talk about the we've got to talk about his offer, maybe we have to talk about...